The Adventures of Elizabeth Crown presents The Battle of Ruritania, Episode 2. The girl slept, though it could hardly be called sleep. She tossed and turned beneath her quilt, eyes clenched as her brow bubbled with sweat. The sounds that came from her were indistinct, something between murmur and moan. Her skin looked jaundiced in the pale light of the kerosene lamp which dangled above her. She had spent a full night and day in this restless state, and the Sinti had started to fear that she would never wake up. Every hour or so, the women carefully funneled water through her lips. Although her eyes stayed closed and her body shook with fever, the girl swallowed thirstily. The Zinti women crowded around the wagon. They wrung their hands and whispered. The men watched from afar, trading theories about who she was and where she had come from. All this time, Lavinia crouched by the girl, fretting over her every gasp. She watched, herself unable to sleep, and clutched the worry beads she had inherited from her mother. She might have stayed there another day, declining plate and pillow, had another of the women not touched her shoulder and whispered, Lavinia, old Babik wants to speak with you. Lavinia had expected these words, but she cringed all the same. She hadn't given much thought to her story, but she knew she would have to explain this turn of events. Coin and food were rare enough as it was, and the camp already strained from three births in the past year. Lavinia stepped out of the wagon, pushing aside a beaded curtain and stepping back into the stinging cold. The gray sky was all the grayer in the early evening light, and Lavinia wrapped a shawl tightly around her shoulders. She smelled smoke and pine needles. The camp was a ring of six wagons arranged in a meadow. The brittle grass had long been flattened, and stones circumscribed their cooking fires, each flanked by pots and sacks of flour and vegetables. Draft horses grazed nearby, their bridles tied to saplings. Women worked, children roamed, men smoked pipes. They had settled here since the spring, in this quiet little meadow in the forest. There were forty Zinti in all, a seamless blend of three extended families. Some foraged for food, others sold trinkets in the streets of Strelsau, others worked odd jobs. At dusk, they all trickled back to their wagons for food and sleep. This was the only life Lavinia had ever understood, the perpetual squatting of her clan. But old Babik wasn't in the camp. He lingered in the distance by a row of spruce. As Lavinia approached, her elder came into view, his wiry arms and legs, his growing paunch. Old Babik wasn't truly old, but his beard had grown fluffy and white, 
and he wore a knit cap over his silver locks. He leaned against a long wooden staff, the same he had carried since Lavinia was young. He gestured to a stump, and Lavinia reluctantly seated herself. You found her in the woods, said Babic in his slow and chalky voice. Yes, by the swamp. And she hasn't yet stirred. No, not yet. Babic bobbed his head. Lavinia, you're twenty now, yes? Almost twenty-two. Ah, how quickly time passes. You remind me of your mother, you know. She helped us through many hard times. She was quiet, as you know, which was her way. But she had seen many things, more than many knew. Lavinia shivered, partly from the growing cold, partly from the memory. Her mother's passing was only two years before, and the image of her fevers was still fresh. What I mean to say is, old Babic went on, I could trust her with a secret, and I think you are old enough to be trusted as well. Am I right about this? Lavinia stared at him. She barely felt herself nod. She had never heard the old man speak in this way. Rarely in all their years had he spoken directly to her at all. I have seen this girl before, said old Babic, his voice now even lower. He stole a glance at the camp. And I know where she comes from. Who is she? Lavinia whispered. As you have likely guessed, she is Sinti, like us, from another camp, on the other side of the swamp. Lavinia screwed up her face. There are others, other Zinti. How long have they been here? A few weeks, said Babik. They came from the other direction, from Poland. I met with them, twice. Why did you not tell us? They were not well. They had some trouble with the law. I, I don't know exactly what, but I didn't want to get mixed up in it. You know the police. They cannot tell one Sinti from another. Lavinia sighed, but she could think of nothing to say. There were others who had been so near, only a few miles away, and she'd had no idea. Who else in their camp had known? Whom had old Babik trusted, and whom hadn't he? I know this girl, Babik went on. I remembered her. From the moment you carried her here, I knew where she had come from. I believe her name is Vadoma. Vadoma, echoed Lavinia. You were right to bring her here. Whatever the others might say, know that in your heart you did the right thing. Oh, I am so glad to hear you say that, Babik. Now that we know who she is, we can bring her back. They will be so happy. Old Babik raised a hand. His stern expression didn't match her relief. Let me ask you, Lavinia. Would Anastasia ever wander off on her own, without food, too weary to go on? Our Anastasia? No, of course not. Nor would this girl. She would never go into the swamp alone, 
and if she strayed from the camp, she would be quickly found by her own kin. Which is why I fear something terrible has happened to the others. Worse than thieves, or police, or wild animals. Lavinia forced out the words. A pogrom. Yes, hissed old Babak, fierce and furious enough to chase this small child from everything she knows. If her family were not all killed, then they are likely taken away. Do you know this for sure? I do not, but I know how the people of this country fear us. Of all the lands we have come through, none has reviled us like Ruritania. You've seen it in the streets of Strelsau, how they chase us away, how the children throw rocks at us. But what can we do? Rocks are one thing, but a pogrom. Old Babik nodded grimly. I had hoped to move the camp across the border by winter time, but you know as well as I do how little food we have left. I don't know the part of Germany that lies beyond, at least not well. Our only choice is to stay until the thaw. But whatever it is, said Lavinia, whatever she ran away from, yes, it is close to us, and we must be ready. Whatever it is, we must learn from this girl. The moment she wakes, you must tell me, and only me. Only you? Yes. Fear will destroy us first, and before we even know what it is, we must confront. For the good of us all, say nothing. Babik smiled weakly, his wrinkles stretching around his mouth. It's what your mother would have done. Sondor examined himself in the mirror. He fussed with his cummerbund, his good eye squinting with agitation. He drew back his arms and shoulders, yet the black fabric would not settle into his frame. He gave up, then fumbled with the cufflinks. Elizabeth connected a necklace behind her nape. She smiled at Sondor's reflection. At least let me help you with your tie, she said. Sondor harumphed at this. The man looked handsome in any fashion, except perhaps for a dinner jacket. For the first time in memory, he had traded his high leather boots for polished black shoes, and the pleated trousers looked absurd on such an athlete. He obstinately tried to twist the tie into a bow, but the fabric confounded his calloused fingers. Elizabeth stepped in, looping the tie with practiced ease. There you are, she said, patting him on the chest. You look good enough to wait a table in the finest restaurant. Sondor smirked. At your service, Miss Crown. And might I add, you look lovely this evening. I am unworthy of your company. About time you realized that, Elizabeth said. How nice this was, to trade some banter in such a palatial suite. As Elizabeth inserted a pair of glass earrings, putting those obscure piercings to good use, she and Sondor traded flirtatious glances in the vanity mirror. 
Her gown was a gray satin, a flattering V-neck cut with gauzy sleeves. The outfit was refined and fashionable, as foreign to her body as the tux was to Sondor's. Her headband, all the rage in the nightclubs of Paris, graced her head like a feathered tiara. They were playing dress-up, here in the bourgeois comfort of a chimerical castle. Tonight, they would share a kingly bed, sequestered behind the velvet drapes of its canopy. For eight years, Elizabeth had daydreamed of this very escapade, trotting across Europe, guided by a secret purpose, spending each night with the only man she'd ever allowed herself to love. Elizabeth threw a shawl over her shoulders. Chilly, these castles, she said. Luxury comes at a price, rejoined Sandor. Shall we? Elizabeth closed their door and swished down the hallway to Maud's room. She knocked on the heavy wooden entrance. After some muffled murmurs from inside, the door opened and Maud stepped shyly into the light. As always, she was breathtaking, in a dress of plain green, its weaving vertically textured, like a cascade of emerald rain. Most surprising of all, Elizabeth wondered where her assistant had found the three white carnations to decorate her hair. "'For heaven's sakes, Maud!' she exclaimed. "'You've outdone me again!' Maud shifted her feet. "'Maybe it's too much?' Elizabeth slid her arm through Maud's and whirled her around toward Sondor. "'What do you think?' said Elizabeth. "'Is she perfect or is she perfect?' They descended the heavily carpeted staircase. In the foyer, they found Milos waiting for them, arms straight at his sides. He bowed, then led them through a pair of French doors. The dining room was the strangest of all, a perfect circle of smooth walls with a circular table situated in the middle. Instead of windows, the walls were a quilt of oddly shaped mirrors, hundreds of looking glasses locked together, each frame unlike the others. As they entered, Elizabeth saw her face emerge in rectangles and ovals, some warped or discolored, a disorienting succession of her own image. The table could easily have seated a dozen diners, but there was only one. Baron von Brutzen, dressed in a double-breasted tuxedo. Naturally, its fabric was canary yellow. Next to Brutzen, a man was already seated. Elizabeth's heart leapt. She broke away from Sondor, rounding the table. She threw her arms around the old man's shoulders and cried, Sir Shanley! She pressed a hand against his ruddy cheek. Is it really you? The man looked much as Elizabeth remembered, only plumper, and his white hair was transparently thin. He wore his dress uniform, a bright red jacket with gold trim and epaulets. He was still confined to his wheelchair, though the man was seated with surprising straightness. His mouth still curled at the side, the lingering sign of stroke, but Sir Shanley replied, in his breezy English voice. Elizabeth, 
Welcome. They were here, together, for the first time. Assistant, lover, mentor. In all these years, Elizabeth had never imagined such a confluence of friendships. Emotion overwhelmed her. Tears welled. No one had told her Sir Shanley would join them. How the frail old man had weathered such a journey, Elizabeth could only guess. She had spent so much of her life in solitude, drifting from one incident to the next. She had nearly forgotten what camaraderie felt like. Elizabeth collected herself. She examined the warm faces around her, swept a tear from her eye, and said, Well, I'm famished. Servants appeared from nowhere. They floated through the kitchen, wearing spotless uniforms, carrying covered plates. They removed the cloches in unison, and soup appeared behind billows of steam. Elizabeth was shaky with hunger, but she wielded her spoon with rare delicacy. She'd never felt at home in high society, never mind a nobleman's chateau. But for once, she liked the elevated atmosphere, the ring of burning candles, the decadent vintages that poured into their glasses. If she must endure elitism, it might as well be here, in Rudolf von Brutzen's inimitable home. The conversation was staggered, unfolding in several languages. Sandor and Rudolf traded pleasantries in Hungarian, and Sir Shanley offered an occasional comment in English or German, which incited chuckles from them both. Maud was quiet as ever, but she watched the others with fascination. Elizabeth wondered what she made of all this, and she hated leaving Maud in the dark. Rudolf was an oddity true, but Sir Shanley meant nothing to her. She had never even heard the man's name. At last, Rudolf slid back his chair, plucked up his glass, and stood. A toast is in order, he said, and it is much overdue. He cleared his throat, and the good humor left his face. Sharp lines materialized around his mouth. For four years, I stood on the wrong side of history. Ah, Rudolf, Sandor spat. No, it must be said. Rudolf held a fist over his mouth, then resumed. The war was a confusing time, for everyone, I think, but all the more confusing for a German pacifist. You are not German, Sandor bellowed. A German speaker, then. My country sided with Germany, and with Austro-Hungary, and with the Turk. We sent 4,000 men to the Western Front and 2,000 to the East. No modest sum for a nation as small as ours. Half of them lie buried in France. The rest, you may see them in the streets of Strelsau, hobbling about on canes and crutches, madness in their eyes. Rudolf paused to scan the endless mirrors. I oppose the war, and I am glad of that. No loyalty was worth such inhumanity. Yet Ruritanian pride still haunts me. Our arrogance, our willingness to march into the trenches. I shall never forgive our king, and I hope the world shan't either. 
a reflective silence descended. Then Sandor said, If anyone can find you on a map, I hope they remember not to forgive you. Rudolph chuckled, which gave the rest license to chuckle as well. They all raised glasses, filled the air with cheers and prost, and sipped their respective wines. Now, said the baron, licking his lips, the time has come to discuss our purpose here. Everyone shifted in their seats. The butler, Milos, gave Rudolph a clandestine nod. He stepped from the room, shutting the French doors behind him. I hardly need to tell you, continued the baron, that this is a matter of utmost secrecy, not only for the sake of our order, but for my own sake as a private citizen of Ruritania. What I am about to divulge is tantamount to treason. Not one of my countrymen could be counted on to defend me if he heard what I must now say. Rudolph stretched his hands across the table. He leaned forward, head lowered, as if readying to sprint across the cloth. It is no secret that our king is old, continued Rudolph. What is less known is his mental infirmity. He is barely cognizant of his daily routine, much less the affairs of state. And a king's senility breeds avarice. Hence, his son and heir, Prince Mikhail. Now, it is the nature of the eldest son to covet his father's crown. Mikhail would be a very strange prince if he did not. And there is only one reason he has not yet seized the throne by force. He is a recluse. Prince Mikhail has not been seen in public for nearly three years. Even his younger brother and sister know little of him, which is not to say that these three siblings were ever close. Then why worry? Elizabeth countered, awkwardly swallowing a mouthful of Riesling. If the king is loopy and the prince can't be bothered, what's the trouble? The prince may not be seen said Rudolph, but his presence is felt in every corner of our country. He has powerful friends, he has created his own police force, and his own network of intelligence. Spies, spat Sandor. Rudolph's eyes darted about the room, precisely, and all in preparation for his reign. But there is more, of course. I would not invite the Order of Seshot to my home for something so banal as a selfish prince. What we have learned is that Prince Mikhail has constructed a laboratory at great expense within one of his estates. And how do you, um, know this, Baron? piped up Sir Shanley. Rudolph smirked. Prince Mikhail does not have a monopoly on espionage. I have a few spies of my own, but not enough, it seems. We do not know precisely what goes on in this lab. All we know is that he wishes to develop a new technology, something revolutionary. He has described it as his Überwaffe. 
A super weapon, murmured Sandor. But what is it? Rudolf shrugged. That we do not know. And it is the reason I have solicited your help. The prince is a calculating man. Once he is crowned, I believe Mikhail has ambitions far beyond the borders of Ruritania. If he pioneers a true superweapon, he will not hesitate to use it. We shall have survived one European war, only to be plunged into a second. Any chance we can knock on his door? Elizabeth said. Maybe we could pose as patent officers. The men chuckled at this, guardedly, uncertain whether Elizabeth was serious. Rudolph said, I wish it were that simple, Fräulein, but in Ruritania, men have disappeared for lesser curiosities. I see only one solution, a reconnaissance mission. We must enter the lab in secret and find out what we can. All the guests took in this recommendation in studied silence. All, that is, except Maud, who looked from one face to the other in perplexity. Sir Shanley, I will, of course, ask you to organize the mission, said Rudolph. I will secure the necessary intelligence. I still have many friends in the Ruritanian ministries who will be only too happy to aid us. Beyond that, I trust your tactical knowledge. We have the mm, element of surprise, said Sir Shanley. That shall mm, help us greatly. Agreed, said Rudolph. Or rather, I mostly agree. The prince does not expect such a bold assault, I am certain. We shall enter the lab, find any evidence we can, and photograph it. No blood needs be spilt. If we leave no traces, no one shall be the wiser. But the prince is a shrewd man, and I cannot lie, this mission is a perilous one. It is possible that we shall be spotted, which is why I have requested certain contraband. If the prince hears a whisper of our investigation, I expect a swift and violent response. We shall need to defend ourselves. This contraband will be helpful, said Sandor, as shall this castle. If there is one place we should feel confident, it is within a medieval fortress. Indeed, said Rudolph. But make no mistake. Once he has the weapon he needs, the prince shall attack anyone he likes. Once again, I am a pacifist. I love peaceful coexistence above all things, but Prince Mikhail will not negotiate. For all intents and purposes, we are at war. been listening to The Battle of Ruritania, Episode 2, written and performed by Robert Eisenberg. The Adventures of Elizabeth Crown is produced by Airmail Media in Providence, Rhode Island. Music provided and licensed by Audioblocks.com. 
To learn more about the exciting field of oncology, visit elizabethcrown.net.